Hello, hello. Welcome to Be Bold America. I'm your host, Jill Cody, along with my co-host, Dr. Pettis Perry. How are you today, Pettis? Friend, how about you? I understand you're up in a beautiful part of Northern California. I am. My husband and I are celebrating our eighth anniversary, even though we've been together 23 years, and we're up in Napa. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm having fun here, but now we're going to have an hour of fun with a guest. Also, I should wish you a happy Father's Day. Well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. You're welcome. And it's also Juneteenth, commemorating the emancipation of the enslaved African-Americans back in 1865, right? That's correct, and it's uh, it's a great day for those of us who celebrate it. You know, on uh, January 1st, 1863, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation that declared that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are and henceforward shall be free. But news traveled kind of slowly in those days, Jill, and it wasn't until on June 19th, 1865, that Union Army General Gordon Granger under General Order Number 3, enforce the freedom of enslaved people in the last state in the Confederacy, which was Texas. Although many uh, of those people who were freed were held in bondage until after the crops were harvested, late, harvested later that year. You know, and what I had forgotten about, Jill, was that in 1979, Texas became the first state to make Juneteenth an official holiday, with several others following suit over the years. Well, that is really fascinating. Texas. And it was Texas. President Joe Biden who signed the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act on June 17th, 2021, to make it a federal holiday. So here we are with a happy Father's Day and a, a Juneteenth to our listeners, too. Now, on to our guest and topic today. Our program is In the Arena. What can we learn from a presidential hopeful's defeat? Our interview guest is the author of In the Arena, A History of American Presidential Hopefuls. This beautifully photographed and published hardcover book profiles 34 Americans, American leaders who captured their party's nomination for the presidency but never reached the Oval Office. In the Arena chronicles the rise, early careers, campaigns, and later achievements of historical giants like Aaron Burr, through modern candidates like Hillary Clinton. The author, Peter Shea, says that Americans should honor and remember those who failed in pursuit of a great goal, in this case, the presidency of the United States of America. Some handled their defeat on a world stage creatively, and some never psychologically recovered after such a loss. Understanding and learning why some hopefuls recover from their national loss unscathed well, maybe slightly unscathed, <laughs> and why some uh, and don't might just benefit us. So we have big things to do. Pettis, would you like to introduce our bold guest today? It would be my absolute pleasure. Peter Shea has been a writer, editor, and teacher for over 25 years and a history geek for far longer. 
He has written about prominent Irish Americans, educational gaming, and cutting-edge technologies in higher education. Peter is a director of professional development at a community college, and his latest book, In the Arena, A History of American Presidential Hopefuls, marks his return to the subject of public lives in America. Welcome to Be Bold America, Peter. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're quite welcome. Jill, back to you. Thank you. Well, Peter, it's a joy to have you on the program, and your book, In the Arena, is beautifully published and photographed and extensively researched. Why don't you first tell us what prompted you to write this unusual book, and in addition, tell us about the photographer. Well, the beauty of the book really is owing to the designers at uh, Publisher Trope and the um, work of my partner, uh, in this enterprise, Tom Mady. And it was Tom who first approached me. He's a Chicago native. And we then, I'd worked on Tom's book 25 years ago called Great Chicago Stories. And um, about eight years ago, Tom called me and said, I want to do another book. And he said, you know, I live near the Stephen Douglas Monument in Chicago. And he said, why don't we do a book about people who ran for president and didn't succeed, and the monuments to those people. I'm fairly certain there won't be any competition. And I said, you're right, there won't be any competition, so let's do it. And I, and I just, again, I've always, apart from my interest in history, I've always been interested in how people deal with failure. Because failure is just um, one of our most profound learning tools. We learn more from failing than we do from initially succeeding. And therefore, I was curious about how these individuals dealt with that failure because in the United States we have this peculiarity where we where we understand the value of failing in business enterprises and how that can really um, increase a, a business person's understanding of how to do their business but in politics we're, we tend to be very severe on people when they lose um, rather than reflecting on the fact that most of us wouldn't have I think the, uh, the stamina to expose ourselves to um, uh, a, a public contest like that. And, um, and as someone who's always been interested in American history, it struck me that I knew a great deal about the people who had won, but I knew very little about the people who had won. So that was another impetus for me to want to pursue this project. Well, we exchanged a couple of emails before uh, the show, and you mentioned you had a lot to say about Al Gore, one of our uh, presidential hopefuls. Um, and I, I know Al Gore. I've, um, I've done a lot of trainings with him, and uh, and he's just not the person we saw uh, uh, running for president. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think Al Gore is is a wonderful exemplar of of the of the category of person we're talking about in terms of how they deal with failure. Because um, in Gore's case, he was an individual who. Of whom some many people said he was almost he'd almost been raised by his father to become president. I mean, he had the resume, the education, the track record, the experience, every possible box checked, um, and he was following on the heels of uh, after eight years as vice president um, in, in a successful um, uh, presidential administration. And so, and and again, for for him not only to lose but to but to have won the popular vote, and then because of the that that was I mean I psychologically you could even if you didn't vote for him you had to feel 
just from empathy, because he was the first person in over a hundred years who had won the popular vote, um, but the um, the electoral college didn't go for him. Um, and that other person was Samuel Tilden, and that led to the Compromise of 1876. But you know, we've we've become so accustomed to the electoral and the popular vote being aligned that we didn't really think about this this aspect of our system. And you know, for with Gore, it was fascinating because um, you may recall in the year, year or two after um, his loss, he kind of grew a beard, and he looked physically very different than the person he had been um, during his, his political career. And then he sort of reemerged from that and reinvented himself as an international spokesman on environmental issues, um, as well as someone who could, um, with a wonderfully developed sense of humor, gently poke, um, humor, make jokes out of his own predicament. I recall him doing a um, some uh, a Saturday Night Live skit about you know being you know, almost being president and and being on his uh, daughter's show Futurama, and I just think that's a you know, wonderful humor is such an essential quality in dealing with um, failure constructively, and so in many ways he is he's like the great modern represent, representative of this type of person because how do you how do you deal with it, um, and I think in the end he dealt with it very very well, and I think that's essential. I think it's really a great quality to have. I think he did too. I when I watched him through the president, you know, running for president, he seemed very stiff yeah. and didn't show his sense of humor. And when I uh, was in several trainings in Nashville with him, and he showed a great deal of uh, of of his humor and his wit. And I even uh, we had dinner, and there were a few of us that were having dinner with him. And I walked over and I said, because I'm a hugger, and I mm-hmm. said. If I gave you a hug, would Secret Service come out and <laughs> whisk me away to prison? And he laughed, and he gave me this huge bear hug and said in my ear, no, uh, that's not going to happen because I'm not worth killing anymore. <laughs> and I went, <laughs> you know? That's a great, uh, that's a great, see, that is an absolutely awesome joke. I wouldn't have had the nerve to make it myself if I was in a predicament, but that is that really puts the finger on on the pulse of, of politics. Um, uh, yeah, I just his, think that's awesome. Yes. And I just wanted to say that if people want to see the real Al Gore, there's a TED Talk, his first one on um, the TED Talk in 2006, which was you know, a couple of years after the um, loss, but he did that joke again about being almost president, and he was so funny. It was like a stand-up comedian. That's the person I wish we saw uh, running I, for president, but it's nice to hear you say that he's really an, a good example of coming back from a, a, a worldwide loss. Yeah, yeah. I think back, yeah. I think he had the Dewey Dilemma. And I call it that because Thomas Dewey, who lost to Harry Truman, had much the same problem. In, in private, Dewey was called a warm, very engaging person, um, very different from the, per, from the individual we saw in public situations. He kind of, that aspect of his personality disappeared. Whereas other people who um, are not warm and often superficial can often appear in public as being much more embraceable and empathetic. It's an unfortunate fact that you know the difference between public and, and personal personas. But when you run for president, it's the it's the public persona that obviously that matters the most. Uh, Pettis, you have a question. I know you uh, do. 
I've got lots of questions, Jill. You know me. Uh, Peter, you have, you have some fascinating work. And I love the fact that you took the perspective of those who didn't ascend to the throne, if you will, uh, because I think there are important lessons in it for all of us. And I'm always, as an educator, interested in how uh, life stories can be embraced by the common person as lessons to uh, to learn from. And you speak about loss and how people respond to it, which is what I found as the central thesis to your work. Um, were there any commonalities between those who were successful and between those who were not successful in their bids for the presidency? Were there any things that you gleaned from your research that kind of separated the two? Or, or was it strictly an issue of timing, uh, the historical timing of when they uh, attempted their campaigns? Could you speak to us about that? Sure. Yeah, I think timing plays a tremendous role. Um, there were a lot of really qualified candidates um, who went up against one another. And you know, I'm reminded of that quote when when Napoleon was asked what quality he desired most in his generals, he said luck. Um, and and that's such a, we don't we don't often acknowledge the fact that luck plays um, a great role um, in, in presidential candidacy. Sometimes people are the right people run at the wrong moment, uh, and sometimes the wrong people run at the right moment. And there are so many things, factors, and variables which can influence the public's decision. Um, and it hasn't gotten any better. I mean, you know, one of the striking things about American presidential um, campaigns, certainly when observed abroad, is how early they begin. I mean, people start running for president generally these days two years before the office becomes open. Whereas in other democracies, um, you know, uh, to the degree that there are presidential campaigns, it's it's only a few month um, process. Um, so it's it's a, it's a you know, in order to become president, we have to convince so many people, and um, there's so many things that can influence the economy. Obviously, is one of them. Um, the, the 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 mood. It's striking how many people, you know, when they run for president, um, they ran they succeeded. They ran at the right moment. Whereas four years later or four years earlier, they would have been lucky to get the candidacy. I mean, and that's very hard to control. But it does come back to the idea that you you have to be someone willing to to take uh, the tremendous risks and be prepared for the tremendous uncertainties which occur in um, presidential um, campaigns. I mean, if you're a leader in a parliamentary democracy, in a sense, it's far easier. You simply become the head of your party and wait for your turn. Um, but Americans, it's you really have to put yourself out there and expose yourself, and and risk uh, and losing in a way that that could damage your future prospects. Um, so, so it takes a it takes a great degree of courage and nerve, and you know, and that's something that we emphasized in, in the title of the book from the Teddy Roosevelt speech because. You know, Roosevelt emphasized that, you know, we, the public life needs people who are going to go into the arena even if they fail. And even though the Teddy Roosevelt quote is fairly well known, many people don't know the title of the speech from which it's taken, which is about citizen in a republic. And Roosevelt's larger point was it's not just our political candidates who need that quality. Republics need people who can, who can deal with risk 
and commit themselves because it's 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 a much more demanding form of government other forms. So it requires a citizenry who are who can do who can manage and embrace constructive risk. And that's how that's how wow. we found these these people inspiring because they literally as they exemplified that, that Roosevelt's ideal. They were willing to take the risk. Well they deal with the risk and then and that's exposing themselves for two years and I don't know how many of us would even try to do that. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. Listen globally online from the ksqd.org website. Our topic today is In the Arena. What can we learn from a presidential hopeful's defeat? And we're speaking with Peter Shea, who's been a writer, editor, and teacher for over 25 years and a history geek for far longer Peter is now the author of In the Arena, A History of American Presidential Hopefuls. Visit trope.com, that's T-R-O-P-E, trope.com, and click on books to see this beautiful edition. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Hello, K-Squid listeners. I'm Todd Hartman, and each weekday at 4 p.m., I bring you a different perspective on the news than you're likely to hear on most media outlets. Please join me on KSQD Santa Cruz, your ink spot on the dial for the Tom Hartman program. Heard now for the first time ever in the Monterey Bay area at 90.7 FM, weekdays at 4 p.m. That's progressive talking conversation with me, Tom Hartman, weekdays at 4 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. Tag, you're it. We're back, and we are listening to our bold guest, Peter Shea. Now, Peter, after completing your research of 34 hopefuls from Aaron Byrd and Hillary Clinton, what was the most surprising thing you learned? Wow, I couldn't say there was one one thing, but I was struck by well, the fact... share a couple, then. I'm going to exactly yeah. say a couple of things, is that um, there's a wonderful diversity of personalities, and and... I think one of the really striking things about a number of these candidates was the contributions they made, the important things they did um, prior to and after running for president. I mean, for many of them, the presidential campaign was one chapter in very eventful lives. And um, I think that's important to remember that, that they ascended to the candidacy because they were achievers, and they continued to be achievers afterwards. They continued to contribute, sometimes in, in, in big, important roles, and other ways in smaller roles, but they were constantly contributing, and they were constantly um, con- you know, engaging in the national life, which I just think is very inspiring. Um, I mean, it's funny. The, uh, your show, obviously, Be Bold America, and that was really um, the theme, I think, that comes with the book, is you have to... You have to be willing to go out there and take risks, and and these these men show how they their 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 efforts really contributed to that American mentality, which is essential to our national health. And one woman. And one woman. Yes, thank you. We finally got a woman in there. That's right. And she, and, she, and she hasn't. St- she's still out there. She's still talking. She's still um, meeting with people. She's still contributing. See that she's clearly a member. You know. Uh, of this team, where she says, "I'm not, I'm not going into retirement. I'm going to continue on," and that is that somewhere Teddy Roosevelt is smiling. Oh. <laughs> Pettis, back to you. Thank you. You know, it's uh, it's this thing about failure and getting up uh, and. Uh, 
continuing the fight, if you will. Uh, you know, it happens to all of us over the course of our lifetimes. I'm reminded, I believe it was Ali who said, it's not how many times you get knocked down, but how many times you get up that makes the difference. So we have to keep trying, particularly for, you know, for those of us who, who are trying to be fundamental change agents, uh, because you're going to have probably many more losses than you do wins, but it's the wins that become significantly important. So let me ask you this about um, several candidates, uh, one of whom uh, was successful. Why, in your, your opinion, was Barack Obama successful in his bid for the presidency and Shirley Chisholm and Jesse Jackson were not? I think, again, timing um, was a tremendous, um, played a tremendous role for President Obama's campaign. Uh, he was a candidate um, who obviously benefited from the pioneering work that Jesse Jackson and Shirley Chisholm had done early on. They, they, were path for, they helped clear the path for him. They helped establish the precedent. Um, and I think when President Obama ran, you know, it wasn't just that the, the, that the country had matured. It was also that he he did the best. He present. He gave the best case that he was the person for the moment. He 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 conveyed to people in two campaigns that among the candidates for president, he was the one who was best temperamentally suited um, to guide the country um, in the early 21st century. And I think that was, uh, you know, I think one of the things about Barack Obama is that he he. He conveys a confidence that we all wish we had, um, and that's one of the things that make him an immensely appealing um, candidate. But obviously, given you know the history of ethnicity in this country, it was much more challenging for him than for other candidates, um, which is why those earlier people, um, Representative Chisholm and, and Jesse Jackson, why it was important for them to do it, even though the odds were tremendously stacked against us. Someone, again, has to be the first one to clear the road. And, and then someone else benefits following afterwards. And so, you know, obviously, you know, Obama owed them a debt of gratitude, and we all owe them a debt of gratitude because, again, both in case of Jackson and Chisholm, they knew that it was highly unlikely that they were going to win, um, but that did not deter them. And that's really the important thing. And they both went on to continue to contribute in their public lives. Yeah, that's outstanding. Um, I, I agree with uh, with that sort of analogy. Uh, timing is everything uh, when you're trying to do something particularly of significance. So what are your thought of, thoughts in light of timing about Biden's ascension to the presidency? And let me throw kind of a curveball in there as well. Uh, where might we have been had Trump won in um, in 20? Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know where would we have been if, if um, Donald Trump had uh, gotten a second term. Uh, I think we would be in a very different place right now, and I'm not sure that I would want to be there. Um, but I think, I think for Joe Biden, you know, I, I can't help wondering how he must reflect in his private moments because he's a person who wanted to run for president, you know, for for decades, and I can't imagine that when he first considered the possibility of being president, that, that he would become president, but at such an um, advanced point in his life. I mean, I, I, I doubt, because I, I don't remember his um, first run. I think it was, he, was a, he was a challenger, and it was at 88 um, that he first made the attempt. That um, sounds right. 
Yeah, and uh, and then you know he didn't get the nomination, but then he continued to serve in the Senate, and I think a lot of um, candidates, I think ironically, it's better for them um, to have to have lost because um, you know when you when you're an American president and you and you go through a presidency, that's it. Your your career is over. You really can't run for anything else. We've only had one president who went back into politics after being president, and that was John Quincy Adams went on to serve for, I think, 17 years in the House of Representatives because he had no problem being an ex-president um, and then working in Congress. He's the only one. Everyone else, it was like, okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm retired. Um, so I think in Biden's case, he, he benefited from accumulating uh, more decades of experience um, in his run. And I think certainly, I think his victory in, in 20 helped probably assuage some of the disappointment he felt when he really felt that he was prepared to run um, in 2016, but his own party said, no, we want you to step aside and, and let um, Hillary Clinton. Um, so being a loyal party man, he stepped aside, but I think he felt that, um, I think he's hinted at times that if he had gone up against Trump in 2016, um, that he may have taken away some of Trump's um, supporters. Um, which is which is obviously what he did in 2020. So again, there's so many variables. It's so nerve-wracking. <laughs> I, that's a good term because I, you know, I'm sitting here biting my nails. What's left of them, for, you know, in terms of looking at 2024 uh, and what might come out of that. Uh, you know, I think we we're at a point. We're at a, a, a very serious inflection point. Yeah. in our country about what we want to become uh, as a nation. Uh, and, it, you know, this is the moment, and it's going to be interesting to see, one, if Trump throws his hat in the ring, and two, uh, if Biden decides to run again. Um, I, I think I'm probably as nervous or maybe even more nervous about the 20, you know, that, uh, than I was uh, about the 2016 election uh, and what the outcomes were from there. Um, you tell a story about Dukakis. Can you talk about the lessons from Dukakis and, and you know, what he did with his life? Certainly. I think of all the people who ran for president— and, and did not succeed, Michael Dukakis was probably one of the most psychologically prepared because earlier in his career, he had run, he had run for re-election as governor being very, for Massachusetts, being very, very confident that his record was going to sweep him back into office, and he lost. And it was a psychologically devastating event for him because he felt that his his... His tenure, his first tenure as governor, had been had been very successful. He had been a good public servant, and he couldn't believe that he had lost to an opponent whom he saw as a very shallow, you know, gladhander. Um, but Dukakis failed to appreciate the importance of establishing um, a good rapport with the public, ensuring some warmth. He was very much one of an early technocrat. He, he loved the nitty-gritty work of government, but he wasn't a, a touchy-feely, warm person. Um, and that's important in politics, certainly important in, in state politics. I, I think of um, one of our great representatives in, in Massachusetts, Tip O'Neill, loved to tell a story about um, uh, hearing about one of his old neighbors didn't vote for him, and he was very hurt, and he said, but ma'am, when I was a boy, I, I, I used to cut your lawn for you. And she said, yes, Thomas, but you didn't ask me for my vote. 
people like to be asked. And he always remembered that. So whenever he got ready to run again for Congress, O'Neill would get up on um, Election Day and turn to his wife and say, Dear, I'd like to ask you for your vote. And she would say, Thomas, I will give you every consideration. Um, so I think, I, I think it's important not only to be good at your job, but you also have to be good at, at, at connecting with the public. And I think Dukakis learned that. And he, he's, in, the, in the years after his initial loss, he went into academia and then slowly rebuilt his political um, team and then ran again and was reelected as governor and had an even more successful time. So I think that when he ran for president and lost, the earlier experience had given him a certain degree of psychological toughness, which enabled him to deal with the inevitable disappointment. Uh, and then again, he went on to another 25 years um, contributing not only as an elder of the Democratic Party, but as a professor of public policy and where he taught in innumerable students uh, in both Boston and in Los Angeles um, and how public policy is formed in America. So again, good example. Yes, yeah, so leaders so uh, need break, to make that connection with their right. with their followers. Right. Thank you. After the after the break, I uh, we've been talking about people who've been creative and have succeeded. But after the break, I'd like to talk about some examples of those that uh, psychologically didn't recover. If you're just joining us, our topic is In the Arena, What Can We Learn from a Presidential Hopeful's Defeat? And we're speaking with Peter Shea. Peter is the Director of Professional Development at a community college level, and In the Arena marks his return to the subject of public lives in America. Pettis and I would like to add you to our news group, and you may do so by texting Be Bold America at 22828. Text Be Bold America at 22828. Thank you for helping us grow our list. We'll be right back with our bold guest, Peter Shea, right after Jim Hightower explains how today CEOs of big corporations are playing the tricky inflation blame game. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Today, CEOs of big corporations are playing the tricky inflation blame game. Publicly, they moan that the pandemic is slamming their poor corporations with factory shutdowns, supply chain delays, wage hikes, and other increased costs. But wait, inside their boardrooms, executives are high-fiving each other and pocketing bonuses. What's going on? The trick is that these giants are in non-competitive markets operating as monopolies, so they can set prices, mug you and me, and scamper away with record profits. In 2019, for example... Before the pandemic, corporate behemoths hauled in roughly a trillion dollars in profit. In 2021, during the pandemic, they grabbed more than $1.7 trillion. This huge profit jump accounts for 60% of the inflation now slapping U.S. families. Take supermarket Goliath Kroger. Its CEO gloated last summer that, quote, a little bit of inflation is always good in our business, adding that, quote, We've been very comfortable with our ability to pass on price increases to consumers. Comfortable indeed. Last year, Kroger used its monopoly pricing power to reap record profits. Then it spent $1.5 billion of those gains not to benefit consumers or workers, but to buy back its own stock. A scam that siphons profits to top executives and big shareholders. Or take fast food purveyor McDonald's. 
It bragged to its shareholders that despite the supply disruptions of the pandemic and higher costs for meat and labor, its top executives had used the chain's monopoly power in 2021 to up prices, thus increasing corporate profits by a stunning 59% over the previous year. And the game goes on. We're going to have the best growth we've ever had this year, said a Wall Street banking titan. This is Jim Hightower saying, Hocus Pocus, this is how the rich get richer. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is brought to you by the Lowdown Happy Hour, live streamed from the Chat and Chew Cafe. Details at HightowerLowdown.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. Listen globally online from the KSQD website. And we're speaking with Peter Shea, author of In the Arena, A History of American Presidential Hopefuls. That may be purchased where all fine books are sold. It is a beautiful book you'll want to keep forever. Visit trope, that's T-R-O-P-E dot com, and click on books to see this edition. Now, Peter, we've talked about, you know, the creative people that have lost the presidency, going for the presidency. What can we learn uh, from presidential hopefuls that didn't psychologically recover? And who are are some of them? Well, we learned that they can go very dark. I think that the, the oh. first and, and, and most famous one would obviously be Aaron Burr, um, who, who obviously had a less than constructive post-presidential candidacy career. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, the, the bitterness of, of being rejected, I think not only from his presidential ambitions, um, which were very strong, but the sense of just being thwarted in, in the system is, is obviously one of the things that, that um, drove him to take his anger out on um, Alexander Hamilton, whom he saw as one of his uh, chief antagonists. Um, so that's probably the most famous example of an embittered uh, presidential candidate in our history. Um, uh, another example uh, you know, of someone who lost and, and who, whom it might have affected their outlook would be John C. Calhoun. Calhoun was another person who was seen as a contender for the presidency because he was one of our most um, prominent um, early politicians. But he, and he was certainly seen as a person of great capability, but he was too strongly associated with the South as a regional leader, and, and that certainly um, put off voters in other parts of the country. Um, and, and Calhoun, who had started his career as an ardent American nationalist, became more and more of, a, of an American sectionalist, seeing himself as, as a citizen of a, of a region rather than as a, as a national unit, and which you know, helped, helped encourage him to develop the theory of secession as a means of, of, of dealing with um, regional differences. Um, in many ways, he, he was the intellectual godfather of the, of the political thinking that led to the Civil War. Um, so much so that um, after the war was over, someone once said, the whole South is the grave of Calhoun. Um, so you can, so not everyone comes out of the experience of rejection um, uh, a better person. Um, it's, it's obviously a very challenging process. Um, but those, those are the two that, if you ask me, that, that, that really um, come to mind when I think about who did not handle their losses well. I think, on, on the whole, most of them did, 
which I think is a, is, a, is a wonderful thing to acknowledge. But obviously there were instances where the people did not become better um, men, and that's certainly the case in, in Burr and Calhoun. What do you think of um, George W. Bush? He seemed to just go back to Texas and start painting. Well, you know, it's funny. Again, it's like, you know, once your political ambitions have been satiated, what do you do? Um, I, I think in case of Bush, in some ways he mirrored Al Gore. They were both raised by politically ambitious fathers um, to high office. Now, in the case of George W. Bush, we've often heard that he wasn't really his father's first choice as the heir apparent. But again, the, the fickle, fickleness of political luck, when he won his election as governor of Texas and Jeb Bush lost his first run, lost his attempt to become the governor of Florida, thus giving George W. the, the national um, stage that he needed to launch a campaign in 2000, even though in many ways Jeb was seen as the more temperamentally suited one. Uh, but Bush's, you know, why did he choose to go paint? Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I don't really think, he never struck me as a really ambitious person in many ways. His whole life was really kind of trying to find a role, and then when he found one that seemed to be suited to his personal charm, um, which I think was a big part of his political appeal, he went with it. But I don't think he was, I don't think, he, he never struck me as a person who really had a clear idea of what he wanted to do, other than to have a nice job and be liked. Um, well, that's so why I bring it up. I know it's sort of a digression, because he did win the presidency, but yeah. it just seemed that he behaved as a hopeful, <laughs> even though, yeah, yeah. He, you know, he, his behavior was more for uh, as a hopeful. But with your expertise, Peter, with your expertise in history and having completed your research for this book, what does it mean to you to be an American? Well, I tell you, one of the things, that being an American, taken from the book, is the importance of, uh, of thinking about not only con- contributing, but that, that my contrib- contributions require my ability to take on risks, and I can't I, I can't really make a meaningful contribution unless I take some risks, and I didn't really think about that much before I began researching the book, and after I, I researched the book and I looked at it, I said, what, what do I, what's my takeaway? My takeaway is the people who contribute the most are the people who who are able to do it, you know, by stepping away from complete safety and and, and really. Taking risks. You know, I have a friend who talks about you know the, some of the flaws in how we teach in America. He thinks it's funny that you know risk management, which is such an important skill to have in so many areas of life, is is, is never taught in school. Um, and yet, you know, the most successful people in the world are people who understand how to assess risks and still take them, as opposed to risk avoidance. And I think you know, for me, that's I realize that. In order to really do a maximum contribution as an American um, citizen, I would have to get out of my comfort zone and do things that, you know, and go into areas where I'm uncertain, but still strive to, to do my best. And I think that's, I think that's where I, how I perceive it. Hey, take risks and uh, America being the home of the brave, that kind of, <laughs> in that phrase, home of the brave is somebody's right. taking risks. Exactly. Uh, we don't even think what that means, but that's what it means. That's why they the home of the brave. You have to be brave. You have to be you brave. You have to be brave. 
And that means you're not going to be brave if you're not taking a risk and stepping out of that comfort zone. Pettis? Yeah, I think this discussion about playing it safe is really to the point because we have such a competitive society. And in taking any risk, there is the risk of failure. And how are you going to address that failure should it occur? Uh, so I think that this is really spot on. Um, you know, have have you thought about what the uh, the losers, if you will, you know, how things might have been different had they won. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give some examples to us, you know, about your thoughts on what might have happened? Oh, yeah. I, I think I, I definitely looked at some of the candidates and I thought he, you know, that, that person would have been a better president um, than the person who won. Um, or that person would have been a very good president had he or she had the opportunity to become president. I mean... Uh, I think of um, Winfield Scott Hancock um, would have been a terrific president, not only in terms of his temperament, his experience, his judicious understanding of the country. I think he would have been great. Um, And in fact, um, in the the chapter we do on him, one of his contemporaries who didn't vote for him uh, years later said, you know, the country would, would have been a better place if he had won. Um, this, this is something they really came to assess years later. Um, he, he's a good example of someone who could have been a really good president. Um, Al Gore, I think, again, is a, as a, someone else, I think, who I think American history would be very different right now if Al Gore had become president um, in, in, very, in, in a number of positive ways. Um, so Hillary Clinton. Uh, yeah, I was going getting. I was working my way around to Hillary Clinton. Oh, good. Uh, I was working. Um, it, certainly, some of the the tumult of twenty sixteen to twenty twenty would not have occurred. Um, temperamentally, I think she was certainly much more suited than Donald Trump um, for the office of the presidency. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, one of the things about democracy is it reminds us that. We, the electorate, reminds us that we don't know everything. Sometimes we don't always make the right decision, um, but we still have to be the ones to make the decision. You know, and so it's the best we can do is learn from it. And the, fa- the great thing about elections is we get it to do a reboot, um, which is essential. That's to rejuvenate our system. So yeah. Yeah, my concern is we're corrupting the process. <laughs> That's my concern. I was just going to say that, Pettis. <laughs> the system is being corrupted by uh, gerrymandering, suppression, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. gerrymandering is, is certainly a big issue. And the other problem that we face, and you know, when people complain about the Electoral College, is that it was put into place because the idea of a continental-wide Republic was such a, 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 a wild experiment because I think the founders understood that over time people living in different regions would think very differently. So how do you keep them together? How do you keep them from being feeling um, disempowered when one region becomes more populous than another? Inevitably, how do you how, you know? So I think at the time things like the electoral college seemed like a very clever mechanism, and it, I think it has. Uh, it has worked well for for 200 years in most instances, um, because again, you know, other republics tended to be much smaller countries with much more homogeneous populations. And so ours, you know, ours require special mechanisms to really to 
to keep the original balance. Uh, and sometimes when you put in mechanisms to keep the machine running, the mechanism can itself can sometimes cause problems, as anyone who's you know dealt with a car or any kind of machine that's complicated. So, um, but gerrymandering is obviously um, a, a really big because you know you get these homogeneous voting blocks, and you and and of course that means you get candidates who don't feel the need to reach out to the whole electorate. They only look for um, a very small subset of ardent, um, ardent followers, and that, of course, creates its own set of problems. And, and, of course, the issue is created by running democracy in the age of social media, where people feel compelled to you know, attack one another <coughs> relentlessly, rather than just simply saying, well, I disagree with you. you know, so, yeah. There are a number of significant challenges. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to underestimate that. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Peter Shea, who's been a writer, editor, and teacher for over 25 years and a history Greek geek for even longer, and resulted in an extraordinary research, photographed, and published book in the arena. Visit trope.com and click on books to see this beautiful edition. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Join KSQD Sunday today at 6 p.m. for Reflections on Buddhism. The historic events sweeping over the world can be overwhelming or frightening, and our roles as individuals can feel deeply unclear. It is tempting to respond by vacillating between anger and numbness. Buddhist teachings can offer insight into accepting what is, while developing the capacity for equanimity and the courage for wise action. Join local Buddhist nun Venerable Tenzin for a discussion of how to navigate the nuances of accepting where we are while cultivating positive action and transformation. That's Sunday from 6 to 7 p.m. on 90.7 FM, K-Squid, Many Voices, One Station. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Peter Shea, author of In the Arena, you're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Want a, a friend to hear this interview? Be Bold America is available as a podcast. Now you and your friends may listen from your favorite podcast platforms such as Apple, Google, Spotify, Radio Public, and many more. You can subscribe to, for free. So, Peter, in our last quarter hour, we usually like to talk to our guests about what we all can keep doing, stop doing, start doing based on our topic, but I still have... Um, I think that is one that I'd like to know is we're in the middle of a history-making hearings right now uh, about presidential abuse and corruption. Do you have any views to share as a historian and from your research of Hillary Clinton's defeat that has led us to today? I think, um, I, if I'm not mistaken, we are like in the 50th anniversary uh, of the beginning of the Watergate event, um, which was yes, the last right. big the crisis that the presidency went through. And, you know, I, I like to think that these crises can be opportunities for growth. And because when things go well for a long time, we inevitably become complacent. And we don't realize the fragility of our system. And I think the tumult of the past few years, um, and certainly what happened um, in January of 2021, is, is a wake-up call to remind people that um, we, we cannot afford to be at each other's throats if we want to maintain 
and pass on this system of self-government to our children, we have to find ways of um, compromising and uh, and communicating with one another. And we also have to realize that you know, civility is an absolutely essential quality in a functioning democracy. And democracies that have failed have often been in countries where the code of, of civility has been rather low, where people, legislators shout at each other all the time, they yell. I mean, if you're going to govern this way, you, ha- you if you're going to govern effectively, you have to maintain a, an element of decorum and, and behave like an adult. Um, I, you know, I as for the next election... Um, in spite of the uh, popularity of a Donald Trump, I, I, I do think I would be very surprised, really, if he were to become the candidate again. I think he, um, I think there are a lot of people in the Republican Party who, re- who realize the damage that he's done to their brand, um, and they do not see him as a member of the party of Lincoln at all. He was kind of like an, an alien orgasm, organism that took over the body, and they, they're trying to deal with the damage. Um, I do think there are people in the wings, um, traditional politicians who have watched Trump, borrowed some of his techniques, but are also prepared to advance themselves in um, a much more careful way and without necessarily destroying the the decorum of the office. I mean, I I think, like, for example, Ron DeSantis, I've been watching him in Florida. Uh, I think... um, he, I am I, more inclined to think that someone like him will be the candidate for the Republicans in 2024. Um, well, that, yeah, really, go ahead, really, no. con- go, ahead. go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I, I was thinking, and if he does, then the Democrats will have a, a significant challenger, and the, the, they will be hampered by the fact that, that, they're, that their candidate, um, you know, President Biden, while admired by many people, um, there is the real consensus that um, he's past the age of maximum effectiveness. Um, you know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember how how Ronald Reagan's age was a topic of conversation when he ran for president. Um, and then, of course, in 2020, we had two candidates who were past the age of 70. And I was getting a little bit worried um, because it is such a demanding job and it, it adds 10 years to the life of anybody who takes it on. I mean, just look at President Obama's hair. I mean, that happens yeah. to them all. They just, it just, no matter how calm, the stress of that office is just superhuman. And President Biden will be, if I'm not mistaken, 80 or past 80 when he run, if he runs again in 2024. Yeah, I think somebody um, said closer to 90. Yeah, because obviously it's it's an office well, that takes. Well, he's seventy nine I mean, now. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know we used to. I mean, in terms of elderly politicians, the, the, the Senate was the place for that. We've always had people in the Senate who stuck on a long, long time. That was uh, it's almost a joke. But the presidency was supposed to be a place where we typically considered people past forty five younger than 70 as being at, the, at that point of optimum experience and health to take on the job. Um, and I, I'm concerned that, that we, you know, we're, we're not cultivating enough qualified candidates within that range to, 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 to compete. Because, again, 
one of the things that I took away from my research was that there were there been times when we've had so many good candidates. The tragedy was we couldn't make them all president. And now it's like, well, where, where's our where's our farm team? Where's the where are the up and comers? Where are the people who can really take it on? Where are the people who can inspire the country? Who where, where are the unifiers? Um, and I'm seeing a lot of good people, but I'm not seeing a lot of candidates on either side of the fence who really possess those qualities. So I get, I do get a little bit of That's the sort of thing that worries me. Well, it very, it very much worries me about Ron DeSantos. We had David Pepper uh, on uh, the program a couple of months ago, and he wrote the book Laboratories of Autocracy, you know, where Justice Brandeis, I think, is the one that called the state's laboratories of democracy. But Laboratories of Autocracy, and Ron DeSantos is... You know, is definitely turned Florida into an um, autocratic state, developing his own police force. You know, taking on Disney. Uh, he he strong armed the Special Olympics. Uh, it just uh, so he's really worrisome to me. But anyway, that's my comment. <laughs> Pettis, another quick question before we go to keep stop start. Yeah, I'd like to know how this uh, your research has shaped your thinking about the future of education. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, that in a minute or so? Sure. I, you know, going back to something I said earlier is that there, I really think that there are a number of things um, that we could do better. First of all, obviously, is, is, is bringing the idea of risk into education. Because failure isn't your enemy. It, it's a friend with rough manners. We, we, we learn a lot more from constructive failing than we do from easy success. Um, the other thing that we, uh, we've lost the benefit of a lot, because we are now in a culture where people spend a lot of time in the classroom, K through 12, and then almost immediately into college, we've lost some of the experiential learning opportunities that were so important to shaping earlier candidates. I mean, you know, there's, so many, there's only so many things you can learn in the classroom, and there are a lot of great things you can learn outside the classroom. And sometimes by holding our younger people in classrooms until their age of 21, we, I think we are disadvantaging ourselves to some degree. I mean, life is a great teacher, and, and the best way to experience it is to get out into the world and start doing things. And, and yet we say, finish 12, you know, finish 12 years of, of, of K-12. through 12. Okay, now go into college. Okay, if you're really ambitious, go to graduate school. Well, these are all, one, and I work in higher education. But at the same time, I, I've seen what people learn when they're out in the world doing non-classroom experiences, um, taking on responsibility, encountering people and challenges, um, and, and having those kind of formative experiences. Um, and our, some of our most effective leaders, their best education came when they were out on their own. And so I, I wish we did more experiential learning opportunities, and I wish we... I wish we addressed the, the issue of, of risk and how to manage it and how to use it creatively in our educational system, because I think that's such a powerful learning tool. Thank well, you you're for sort that. of segueing right into the keep, stop, start. What, what should we do, Peter? What should we keep doing with your experience here as Americans, with your historian background? What, what should we keep doing? Well, you know, when Tom and I first started this book about candidates and their monuments. Nobody was, monuments was not an interesting topic to anybody. And then halfway through the book, 
suddenly you couldn't pick up a newspaper without saying, there's a big argument about whether they should keep this monument or that monument. And suddenly people woke up to the fact that monuments are important because they are the repositories of our public memory. And they help suggest what we value and who we value. And I think that's been a very healthy, for the most part, very healthy process. Sometimes the, 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 pull to, the, the urge to pull down monuments has been a little bit too impulsive. But I think having conversations about who and what we should be honoring is ultimately a very healthy and probably overdue public conversation. So I definitely think I look forward to us to continuing to having those kind of conversations. Well, and, and quickly, we have three minutes left. Quickly, what can we uh, stop doing and start doing? Um, what can we start to, um, Well, we can stop demonizing people who don't agree with us um, and, and recognize our shared humanity. You know, one of the things that I, when you study politics um, is that in, uh, often in our political culture, people would contend with one another um, during the day but at night, they were prepared to go have drinks with one another. And that was certainly the, like, the, the culture of Washington, right. D.C. at all times. Now it's like you can't be seen with your opponent. You cannot be seen talking to the enemy. And that's very dangerous right. because they're not the enemy. They are your opponent, but they're also your fellow American. Um, so I think we, we, what we need to start doing is finding more ways in which people from across the, the spectrum can sit and talk with one another. And, and, and get to know it without antagonizing one another. And have, and they don't have to give up their political values, but they can at least have an opportunity where they recognize the common humanity um, of the people with whom they, they share a country. And you talked about, you know, get out there and, and experience life. And life is a great teacher, but we want them people to do it civilly. <laughs> well, Peter, thank you for carving out some of your valuable time this Sunday and for being our bold and impressive guest. Uh, Pettis and I are grateful that you could join us on Be Bold America. It seems that we struggle today to save our democracy, and understanding this history has become even more important. I hope hearing your stories of hopefuls will inspire us even more. Our future depends on it. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you both. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's a great chatting with you. For sure. Thank you. Remember, Be Bold America is available as a podcast. Now you may listen to the show free uh, anytime. I want to give a special thank you to Be Bold America's program engineers, Emily Donham and Eliza James, and the station's program director, Howard Feldstein, and again, to our bold guest, Peter Shea. Visit trope.com and click on books to see this beautifully published book. You're listening to KSQD, Santa Cruz, Many Voices, One Station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org. My name is Jill Cody. And I'm Pettis Perry. Thank you for listening to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep, stop, start.